This program is brought to you by Stanford University. It, 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 it's a great uh, professional and personal uh, pleasure uh, for me to introduce Julian Bell this afternoon. Uh, as, as part of, I didn't quite realize that, in fact, he, he's in the, in, the, in the middle of a residency at, at the Stanford Humanities Center and, and also in this, this uh, series of, of, of uh, lectures that have been taking place about, by, by critics of the various arts, and I'm thrilled very much that he could be part of it. Uh, I, I believe I first met uh, Julian uh, uh, probably 45 years ago, uh, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember our conversation. And uh, I, I, I was in, uh, Billy Abrams and I were visiting his parents, uh, Quentin and Olivia Bell, uh, when we were at work on our study of his uncle, uh, Julian Bell, who the older, who who uh, had been killed, tragically killed in the Spanish Civil War, and Julian Bell, our speaker today, is obviously his namesake, as Julian Bell, his uncle, uh, was the namesake of his uncle, Julian Toby Stephen, who was actually generally known as Toby, um, who had died tragically young, in. 1906, two years before Julian Bell's birth. Uh, and of course, uh, Julian Toby Stephen was the linchpin uh, for the Bloomsbury Group as he introduced his sisters, uh, Virginia and Vanessa, to Lytton Strachey, Leonard Wolf, Clive Bell, John Maynard Keynes, not to mention others. Uh, Julian Bell, our speaker tonight, this afternoon, um, went on to read English at Morton College, Oxford, and then went on, in a way, you might say, entered the, the family trade, uh, specifically, specifically that of his father, Quentin, both a distinguished artist and a distinguished writer, and also of his the great family friend, Roger Fry, a distinguished artist and a distinguished writer and art critic. Um, Julian Bell, our Julian Bell, the speaker this afternoon, is a distinguished painter and a distinguished writer. And some of you may have seen the announcement for the talk that he gave at Monday in the book club. Uh, he's done a self-portrait, a double self-portrait. He's a wonderful painter, and he's done a double self-portrait of himself as painter and himself as writer. And he does both with consummate skill. His first book, Bonard, uh, is available for purchase outside, and his most recent book, The Mirror of the World, uh, A History of Art, is also available for purchase, and he also has written a more theoretical book, uh, What is Painting, um, which is not available for purchase, <laughs> but, but, but I don't believe, uh, but those two, two are. And uh, he also, and I think, I'm not sure, I say this subject to advisement, but uh, a correction, but he may be unique in being a critic for the three, what I regard, I don't know if you share my opinion, uh, the three canonical journals of, of, of serious, uh, non-academic, but serious uh, criticism. That is, he writes for both for the Times Literary Supplement, the New York Review of Books, and the London Review of Books. And really to write for all three 
with, I suspect, they're rather quite different editors, I think is, is an extraordinary accomplishment. And his, among his most recent uh, reviews have been a, a one, also showing the extraordinary range of his interests and his abilities uh, have been two wonderful essays, one on Mark Rothko and one on Watteau. So I think we're incredibly fortunate uh, that this afternoon he'll be talking to us about being an art critic, verbal bubble wrap, or the contradictions of art writing. Julian Bell. Thank you, Peter, for that extraordinarily generous introduction. And um, I, I'd like to say how grateful I am to um, this very warm-hearted and genuinely high-minded uh, Centre for the Humanities uh, for the introduction to the possibility of thinking about a craft that I've practiced for some 18 years without ever properly theorizing. Um, since I'm new in these parts, I think uh, the most straightforward way I can proceed is to tell you where I'm coming from in a very literal and mundane way to illustrate uh, some of the kinds of things I do before I go on tentatively to speculate about the more general conditions of art criticism. Well, um, honour thy father and mother. Um, uh, as Peter has indicated, I uh, grew up in a house where making things to look at and talking about them was an everyday part of life. Um, in talking about that home, I don't really uh, include the earlier generation uh, of whom Peter spoke. Uh, that's to say my grandmother, Vanessa Bell, and my gra the painter, and my grandfather, Clive Bell, uh, the art critic. Um, these people, who I knew slightly, uh, lived at the other end of England when I grew up, and uh, they died before I was 10, and uh, they formed little part in my conscious thinking until quite recently. Um, however, um, their son, my father, there with the Olivetti typewriter, uh, was at once um, a potter and um, a writer of um, art history. And my mother uh, was the daughter of a, uh, a scholar of Italian Renaissance drawing and herself is a, uh, a considerable scholar uh, of literary biography. Well, um, I myself, I'm a docile kind of guy. Um, if I ever made any move to uh, get to the front door and pull the handle and run away, um, all I ever got as far as doing was... Uh, stepping backwards into the hallway mirror and bumping into my own reflection. So, um, I loved painting uh, and I liked writing from an early age. And um, as an irresolute, airy-headed kind of guy at uh, the age of 19 or whatever, um, I drifted towards an English literature course uh, in Oxford University 
Um, my three years there in the early 70s occupied that. It was a strange, rather forgettable hiccup in cultural history. Uh, between the aftermath of Soisante Wheat and all the student revolts uh, and the breakup of the Beatles, on the one hand, very important event, uh, and um, on the other, um, the onset of the Yom Kippur War, the oil crisis, and the mid-'70s recession. Um, as I say, it's rather a, a hard-to-specify period, but the whole drift of it, uh, as far as I was concerned, was towards a, an erosion of whatever frail idealism I possessed and towards um, a dismissive scepticism. Um, I um, came away from my English literature course after three years determined to have done both with the lunatic schemes of psychedelics, revolutions in consciousness that I'd entered college with, the uh, uh, notions of revolutions in the streets that uh, ran around the um, student community, the um, notions of schemes of critical rigor, whether Levisite or Barthesian, that uh, occupied the English faculty, have done with all that ideation and blather and get out of Oxford and learn a solid material craft. Now, um, it happens that uh, last year I um, had the opportunity to write about a, a painter who, a uh, London painter who was born 30 years before me, um, Lucian Freud. I discussed the way that Freud, who had been in the immediate post-war period a glamorous wunderkind of the London art scene, a rather insular period in London, then gradually got marginalized as um, forms of Americana invaded Britain during the late 50s and 60s. British pop was a response to, in many ways, to the uh, explosion of American consumerism in the, in the country and um, like, equally the forms of, of abstraction that uh, uh, entered, uh, invaded uh, the art world. Um, all this sent uh, Lucian Freud off to the margins of um, the art world in many senses during his, his early middle age. And I wrote, anyway, um, in this article, two major canvases of the early 1970s, done as Freud was turning 50, set out his ways of falling back and of fighting back. One pours over the view from his back window, the grey London sky, the drab reiterations of brickwork, chimney pots, window frames and drain pipes that make up a rundown terrace the buddliers springing from mouldering mattresses and charred timbers in the dank waste ground below. The other forces two people, each oblivious to the other, to coexist in tension in a single square canvas. Freud's widowed mother waits for nothing in an armchair while his girlfriend stares at the ceiling half-naked on a bed. 
the hinge of this mute drama being the intense significance each has for the room's invisible third party. I saw, I read, I saw these two canvases in a show in 1974 when I was learning to paint in London, and they meant a lot to me. Retrenchment, both cultural and economic, seemed the agenda of the hour. The old, grungy, unswinging London had swung back into view after an interlude of foolish optimism, and in art it seemed the moment also to break with all the airy projects of the 1960s. Like many an art student before and since, I reckoned it was smartest to be stupid. The dumb simplicity of saying, let this mark be that thing, and the dumb intensity with which Freud clutched at his personal emotional sphere seemed to hit a certain bedrock. Could one maybe build on it? Well, and so Freud himself built on that readout, these canvases, to return subsequently as a megastar of British figuration, while I, the art student, went to ground. I made my way from that point onwards, fired up by that example, through, um, out of London, and into, hmm, would you like to move on? Yes. Um, uh, into English provincial life. There you can see a canvas nakedly done under the influence of Freud. Uh, uh, when my student days and um, I went into realism of an exhaustive and um, defiant uh, manner I, I, I was determined to prove that I could be intensely particular in my paintings that they, sh that they would have nothing ideational in, in, in them that um, it was, uh, I, I, I did every kind of jobbing task as a painter. Um, it, uh, I, I, I did pub signs, portraits, uh, pet portraits, you name it. Um, anyway, this was a precarious basis on which to uh, support a young family. Um, but I struggled through for some 15 years till 1990, at which point... It was recession time again, as it usually is in Britain. Um, the bottom <laughs> fell out of the British art market. Um, mounting debt forced me to deploy, for the first time, my reserve card, my English degree. Um, I found a job as one of the innumerable operatives on the great channel tunnel of British publishing, this vast project that had <laughs> consumed decades of labour. Um, what's now the Grove Dictionary of Art. Um, I was joining a kind of team of hundreds in a large office building in the Strand, and um, we were editing entries coming in from contributors all over the world. Uh, and this um, immersion in art historical detail um, gave me a kind of belated education in the field, uh, uh, which I'd only taken a very piecemeal, piecemeal kind of uh, scattered interest in as a, previously as a working painter. Um, it, also, it also gave me an education, I'm afraid to say, in national stereotypes, um, which abounded um, uh, in the conversation on the corridors of 112 The Strand, where we were editing the, uh, uh, this... Um, this vast 
an interminable thing. Um, the best entries for the purposes of the editors uh, came in from the Russians, whose dialectical material education had given them a sound, uh, a sound balance of uh, illustration and of theoretical uh, structure. Uh, and also, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to say, even more so from the wonderful campuses of America. Um, but um, what was one to do as an editor with the, um, the entries for the slippery, poetic fumbling of the French authors as they <laughs> e e e e evaded uh, any material specifics of the subject you know, under, under discussion? Or the unbelievably terse uh, statements provided by the German scholars alternating with dogmatic categorizations. Um, worst of all, for our purposes, were the contributions of our fellow British, uh, which abounded in ghastly, dilettante flourishes of, little, of pseudo connoisseurship. Cut that out, cut that out. We offend another important author. Um, so, uh, sorry about all this ghastly national stereotyping. I know it's not the style here, but um, uh, it was um, one way or another. Um, reading all these ways how not to do it gave me an inkling that maybe I could do it myself just as well as some of these uh, people. And um, hanging out uh, with lots of scholars, for, uh, uh, lots of editors, um, gave me an opportunity to um, get some work in that field. So, I, um, ever since then, the uh, basic pattern of my life has been that uh, whenever I'm painting, I ought to be writing, uh, and whenever I'm writing, I feel as if I would rather be painting. But uh, uh, it, it, it goes around in circles, uh, but I, I, I don't complain. Anyway, I'm, uh, uh, this preamble is one way of, uh, of describing that there's no such thing, really, as a typical career path for an art critic, as far as I can gauge from surveying my various acquaintances in the field. Um, my, I'm just trying to... Uh, give you one typically untypical uh, entry into the field. My own odd sort of training has been adequate to get me uh, one-off jobs of all sorts from all, all kinds of people in London, Modern Painters Magazine, The Guardian, the TLS, the uh, London Review of Books, and more recently, I'm a uh, great honour of writing for the New York Review. Um, Almost invariably, it's been the case of editors proposing that I take on a subject and hardly ever do I turn them down unless I've got, my schedule is absolutely impossible. Basically, I can't afford to. Uh, and um, I also think it would be chicken-hearted of me. So um, I've taken on anything from doing provincial group sculpture shows in parts of England to... Uh, writing about a, a book by the sociologist Richard Sennett last year, for, um, which was called The Craftsman, and maybe was uh, sent in my direction because it was thought it would be about arts and crafts. It wasn't. Um, uh, uh, 
So how to theorize this, uh, this amorphous piecemeal hack work? Well, let me plunge you into a typically untypical task. One that, in fact, I did feel was particularly tricky, and which, indeed, I'm not giving you this uh, with any particular pride, because, uh, I, 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 but it's representative of the kind of thing one has to do. Um, the TLS, Times of True Supplement, says, do us 800 words on a Tate exhibition of that postmodern painter par excellence, Sigmar Polka. I hope you're familiar with the great German uh, star of the art scene. So there is um, his show. It's called The History of Everything. Uh, it's in the, in, the, in the Tate about, I think it's about five years ago. Um, I perform... I go to the Tate and perform my usual superstitious ritual as, a, as an art critic. Um, I, I walk straight into the room and um, avert my eyes from any form of verbal uh, matter supplied by the curators and uh, uh, refrain from any conversation with any other human being. I am in solitary communion with the works of, the, uh, of Sigmar Polka, and um, it is only at the end of my, my wander around the, the, the room uh, that I pick up the catalogue and do my research backwards on, uh, uh, on the train going home. Uh, so I sit down late at night, because um, uh, there's a deadline the next morning, and... Um, zoom, zoom, juggle the contents of the show in my mind until I found a, a, a promising starting point, or in fact any starting point. One just has to go by instinct. Uh, so um, here, I, here I am setting to on um, Mr. Postmodernity. Sigmar Polka puts in long hours, I imagine. He's produced enough pictures in the last six years to fill nine large rooms of Tate Modern. And many of these exhibits uh, are of intricate complexity. Up till a year ago, when he converted to digital imaging, Polka was rendering the signa his signature patterns of blown-up print dots with one of those erasers um, stuck on the, uh, the, uh, the end of a pencil. His, the Polka studio is also supplied with four-inch brushes to render loose gestural washes of fat, uh, and fat oil-laden arcs dipsticks to trail webs and thickets of enamel, aerosols to enlarge cartoon characters, and wispy sables to imitate 19th century commercial illustrations, plus stacks of curious old feuilletons and chemistry books, kids' comics and daily newspapers, not to mention projectors to transfer their imagery onto sheets of polyester and rolls of wacky wallpaper. Often enough, all these resources and tactics collide within the confines of a single exhibit. The eraser tends to set the pace, however. Um, oh, have I jumped a slide? It doesn't matter. Um, typically, the factor... Just check. Sorry. No? Got my order wrong. There you are. That eraser. Typically, the factor is as steady and assiduous as knitting. And like knitting, it can mesmerise... Your eyes scan the dots as they expand and converge in a search for firm form that's often frustrated. 
I should say that one effect of my English literature education was that I got a terrible, ineradicable taste for alliteration. So it all, it's, all, it's all old English, you know, firm form that's frustrated. I, it goes through all through my writing and I can't get rid of it. Anyway, uh, I go on, mixing my metaphors deplorably. You're left with a visual bubblegum, flavoursome but stubbornly indigestible. Would it be possible to analyse that substance? Why, for instance, I'm afraid I don't have the right image here, but um, um, it's, it's something rather like this. Why, for instance, is a Santa Claus cap overlaid on a scene of old-time huntsmen in the woods? Why are those huntsmen overlaid on green and red wedges of paint, themselves overlaid on a nest of, of white enamel trails? Why does the label read... Where will it all end? Pissing in coke, sitting in spitting in shoes. Might not that Santa Grace note act as a tentative clue as to Polka's underlying fond-heartedness? On the other hand, might not that world-weary title allude to the dislocated ennui of a former prankster termed senior art world eminence? And so... Um, that gives me a cue to retrace uh, um, uh, Polka's history from his debut as a satirist of 1960s boomtime West Germany through to his morphing during the 1980s into a guru of altered states of consciousness. Um, now, what I was, as you can see, seeking to do there in that long excerpt I've given you um, was to ground the discussion of someone who is, according to the New Yorker's Peter Schedel, one of the three most important painters of the past three decades, a contemporary Goya wielding tropes of Dada and Pop, um, the crazed Musselman of the late 20th century pictorial imagination. Trying to ground this outsized figure in an itemization, as material as I can make it, of physical features. Because if I am going to bear witness to the qualities of any particular art, this is simply the way it has to be done. I have to analyse what I see in terms of my studio experience. I have to posit that I can tell something about this operation of Polkas, because it's the work of someone who, like me, this is my studio, um, has stood all day long in a room adjusting an object till somehow it looked as one wished it to look. It looked the right kind of wrong, if not right. And so, doing the, uh, uh, in that passage, I've accumulated a testament of descriptive nouns and adjectives. With each additional substantive, I seem to advance my grip on the work under review. And at the same time, with each additional substantive, my grip on the reader's attention threatens to retreat. I am looking at those objects Polka made as I write, or in my very fresh mind's eye. You, as you read, are merely looking at names. Up to a point, you may like the sound of me naming things. One could even say that naming is the primordial job of the people we expect to sit back and listen to. Think of all those ancient epic poets, of all those name lists in the Bible or in Homer or in Milton, 
those mosmeric concatenations of entities the listener doesn't quite know about but likes the sound of. Well, you know, that's my... Uh, but to, to, to return literally from the sublime to the ridiculous, that, that is my equivalent. But you, the reader, have probably not tangled, as I have, with the wispy sables and the curious feuilletons and the loose gestural washes and the scenes of hunters in the woods. You really don't care that much about these items in themselves. You've turned your attention to my article in the TLS in hopes of something over and above all that. Very soon, if I go on, you'll give up reading. At the very least, I must learn to name more nimbly. Peter Schaudel does. Peter Schaudel is the indisputable doyen of contemporary art criticism, and there's no self-deprecation in looking up to his literary abilities, no more than there would be in looking up to the draftsmanship of Degas Picasso. Schaudel flutters his way through the material evidence when it comes to Polka with the grace of a butterfly. Um, a little bit from his new book. When Polka's resinous medium is applied thinly, it turns its polyester ground transparent like greasy paper. Marks may show through from the back, and shadows of marks may be visible on the wall. Some fabrics are iridescent. Many looked webbed with chicken wire, actually gold string mesh. Vaporous beauty dances in a viewer's eye with tawdry glitz. Whoa. Uh, uh, now, choose the right moment and the right sneaky angle from which to, st uh, 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 to, to shoot that bullet, to fire the word beauty, and the reader is yours. The reader has a minor imaginative orgasm, believes that he has undergone a, pr a primary experience or something very like, has actually tasted what you have eaten. For indeed, this whole business of description is where art writing converges with food writing, that great growth field of the last 30 years journalism. I have been on that cusp myself so often, particularly when I'm performing the humblest and most commonplace of the art writer's tasks, that is to say the, ca the catalogue intro for some artist who you feel warm towards, a piece that very likely will uh, only the artist and his gallerist will ever actually read. Here I go, for instance, talking up a friend, a painter I very much admire and commend to you, called Chris McHugh. Oh, no, 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 we're not talking about that. That's Peter Shedon, of course. Um, but this is the work of, uh, seen for the first time in Stanford, I think, uh, of um, Chris McHugh. And I start off, uh, Chris McHugh, I'm writing, you know, standard catalogue intro piece. Chris McHugh's paintings give out heat, burry and stout. His brush loads flaunt the gorgeousness of cerise and orange, of tomato reds and quince, of quince and lemon yellows, the leaf-bloomed viridians and searing blues that kick these colours into yet bolder life confirm the impression we've been transported to a Mediterranean market stall. I'd better qualify that. These are not paintings of fruit. The McHugh studio in an industrial unit at the back of Brighton is quite a Spartan place, etc., etc., etc. And I go into uh, his career. Um, and um, indeed, I had better qualify that, all that, 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 that lush purple passage. 
I love good food, and I have nothing against lyrical, good f uh, lyrical food writing, but it's not criticism, and you, the reader, must sense that after a very short while. You want, at the least, a steer as to why you should or should not visit this exhibition, this restaurant. Now, this steer, this critical judgment, as opposed to description, is no more dependent on intellectual rigor than is the descriptive adjectival patter. If anything, it's rather less so. Because, of course, you know, description is uh, a faithful folding of the words and the grammar round the object in question. Or that's what one poetically believes. Um, the steer, the critical direction, depends on sheer bloody insolence, on chutzpah, on high spirits. Here's how Shedel persuades you that he has a right to rank Polka in art's top three. He starts his article. I met the confounding genius Sigmar Polka at the 86 Venice Biennale, where the opening of the German pavilion, with a show of colossal paintings by him, was a paparazzi-freaked mob scene. Normally reclusive, the chubby elfin artist had made an exception for the event. He wore a vast Hawaiian shirt and green satin trousers and shouldered a massive movie camera, which he whirred at everyone who tried to photograph him. When we were introduced, Polka acknowledged an essay which I had written, dot, 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 dot. No. So, uh, well, um, that, uh, uh, that is um, uh, how uh, Shedal uh, moves in on the, uh, on the subject pretty shamelessly. Um, as for me, never likely to make it as a Biennale groupie, I reach instead, as you, as you may have heard, for a detached snootiness that's the birthright of every true Briton. <laughs> Sig Sigmar Polka puts in long hours, I imagine. Uh, uh, and unapolo unapologetically, I build on that as my article develops. Having invoked Polka's interest in altered consciousness. I continue. Why do I exit the gallery with my conscious, consciousness altered? Yeah, note, note the snotty tone. Um, uh, why do I exit the gallery with my consciousness altered? Yes, but more precisely, lowered. <laughs> why, what is this listlessness that has crept up on me, this dragging sense of energy loss? The majority of this exhibition, the Tate explains, has travelled from Dallas, where the Museum of Art Curators invited Polka to show over a year ago. Having got the people there to send him some Texas newspapers, Polka has enlarged various shots of gun clubs showing rifles, targets and splatter analysis. He's also been looking at um, uh, news shots of, uh, of diagrams of American surveillance operations in Afghanistan and shuffling through other sources, he's come across a funny photo of nudists, a woman with a pitchfork chasing two men, and that too gets the 20-foot treatment across polyester panels and blue flowery wallpaper. These, I summarise, are not pictures with a political or a social or philosophical content as such. They're pictures of that momentary reflex we all know perfectly well when glancing at a library shelf. There's something over there that people think is very important, but just for the moment, I haven't quite got time to think about it myself. 
Is it a fine democratic act for Polka to represent this shared reflex? Has he thereby triumphantly solved the age-old artistic problem of how to fill the maximum horizontal footage with a minimum imaginative input? The American critic Dave Hickey seems to think so, claiming in his catalogue essay that Polka locates, uh, quote, locates moral authority in the ebullient and gallant modesty of not knowing and never pretending to know. Confusion is normative invariably therapeutic. An ingenious writer, Hickey could probably have woven this postmodern account of the artist as rorty and sceptical ironist, together with another style in critical posturing. Polka's history of everything as an advanced case of cultural entropy, its diffuse twiddly expanses signalling the heat death of the artistic universe. But I don't really believe it's a case of that, merely an issue of a rather overstretched performer being given twice too many runs. Um, uh, What a cop-out ending, you see. I I, I should have have left left it on the the hard line, but um, rather ineffectually, a little bit of uh, empathy sneaks in. It's just another guy in the studio trying to put on a a show. We've all been there uh, putting on, having to, to... turn out too much work from the studio too soon. Um, so, as I say, I, 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 I am unapologetic about my obnoxious British snootiness, and neither would I wish Schedel to apologise for his in-crowds biennale swagger either. Art criticism is a performance. It has to be a performance. The very few true immortals of this peculiar literary genre, Diderot, Baudelaire, Ruskin, Greenberg, maybe we could also mention David Sylvester, Fairfield Porter, and Rosalind Krauss, these people command our awed attention, not, I would argue, because they exemplify logical consistency, but because each exults in imperious impertinence. There's a little of the bully in each, Certainly a high quotient of shamelessness, and one feels it would truly be daunting to disagree with any of the the, the aforementioned in their presence. But they make art more exciting. They make life more exciting. Their articles are not actually jackboots. Are we to avert our eyes from Shadell because he loves literally playing devil's advocate? describing Hitler as a masterly artist and asserting that beauty is fundamentally immoral. This was something on which James Pinero took him to task reviewing this book. So, while I'm arguing for aggression as a critical desideratum, let me return to my treatment of Lucian Freud's career in its later stages. Where are we? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh. Face it. Face it. You haven't, you haven't seen this thing in Stanford yet. It's massive. Um, yeah. The, anyway, I write further on in the same long article uh, from which I was giving that little biographical expert, autobiographical excerpt earlier. The critical comparisons to Rembrandt et al. 
which started to accrue as the art world found a new niche of acceptability for figuration during the 1980s and began to fate Freud as the maestro of a putative school of London, turn on his renderings of flesh. Now, having explained that Freud was something of a father figure in my own life as a painter, it follows, you'll not be surprised to hear, that I've since discovered a certain longing to kill him. <laughs> Freud is quoted as savouring the memory of a fellow figurationist, John Wanacott, who told him, you're a marvellous painter of flesh, Lucien, but you can't compose. A satisfying backhander, Freud remarked, since he wants his pictures to look awkward in the way that life looks awkward. I couldn't agree with either painter less. As Freud's studio routines have solidified and as the stripped bodies have multiplied in his later art, his analyses of nakedness have turned into an increasingly pernickety internal argument conducted in a prissy, bombastic rhetoric. I don't deny that at times Freud's overall design of an image constitutes a powerful response to the sitter. Composition, in this sense, is one of Freud's great strengths. But I do deny that his crusty clots and conglomerations of reds, earths, and lead whites deliver any particular insights into fleshliness, let alone into life itself. If they make me shudder, it is less at mortality than at mannerism. That is how... Thing, that is how things truly are. I, I, I earlier quoted various uh, critics like Michael Kimmerman and David Cohen who'd kind of uh, indulged this idea that this was the guy who was really telling you how awful life was and how awful it is to be a body and be fated to die, etc. That is how things truly are. The pathetic fallacy of realist art always proves hard to refute. One can only pit one realism against another. And then I go on to... Uh, discuss the, a book of photographs of, uh, of Freud's models and um, indeed, you know, it, 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 um, it is hard to refute one re uh, realism with another. You can't uh, very well take that argument. Note the weapons I have to resort to for my attempt at parricide. I, I keep saying, in my eyes, I don't deny that I do deny that, because, because there is no proof, there is no logical uh, demonstration uh, uh, available in the field of art criticism. One is forever saying, look, deictic gestures all the way. A remark by Wittgenstein I came across last week is exactly apropos. Reasons in aesthetics are in the nature of further descriptions. All that aesthetics can do is draw attention to a thing and place things side by side. In that concise thought of Wittgenstein's, art criticism is assigned its proper sphere of competence. That is to say, the logical limits of operation which Clement Greenberg asserted each art should seek to make explicit in the modern era. Greenberg, there he is, um, puffing away. Uh, uh, Greenberg 
for all his reach-me-down citing of Kant's philosophy, could not be, by Wittgenstein's dictum, a logician. He was a looker-at, and looking at was where his genius lay. Yet, Greenberg's historical theory of modernism, the inexorable evolution from the flatness of Manet to the flatness, the flatterness of, uh, of Cezanne through to Matisse through to Helen Frankenthaler. Um, it, 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 it was, in its day, an enormously powerful theory, and it shows how placing things by side, side by side, as Wittgenstein puts it, can deliver conviction. So let me, under that aegis of placing things side by side, crawl in under that shadow. The reason I'm no longer a follower of Lucian Freud is because somewhere along my path of my career as a painter, my dumb, defensive student realism morphed into a wildly all-embracing panoramania. As a painter, I became a devotee of the awfully wide angle. And an analogous ambition has driven my most extended experiment in art writing. The book that I'm here, of course, to promote, must, must give uh, uh, good copies available at uh, so many dollars, etc. Um, uh, uh, and um, so, I, 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 yes, just to add to that, uh, my attempts at Panoramania take me into very distorted and uh, far-stretched perspectives indeed, and that was my attempt to encapsulate the offices where I was working on the Dictionary of Art in one <laughs> cohesive image uh, to, to make an encyclopedia of the encyclopedia. And in many senses, I suppose, that's the kind of, a, of lunatic ambition that fired um, Mirror of the World, A New History of Art. Um, Mirror of the World, which came out, uh, where are we, 18 months ago, 14 months ago, um, is a global art history that has been constructed literally in the, from the studio upwards. My primary consideration in writing the, uh, this book started off as a uh, series of lectures to my students, but uh, uh, it, uh, when I was teaching in an obscure London art school, um, and uh, it developed into um, a kind of personal obsession. But my, my first thought in constructing a new history of art was that in art writing, one truly does rely on saying, look, and that therefore, the more a narrative wrapped itself round its illustration list, the more likely it would be to serve as a vivid and effective uh, uh, text. I'll start with the illustrations. No. I think, um, have, we just pressed, have we just pressed that button or something? No? Where, where are we going, Eric? Ah, I, I, I must have fiddled with something. Uh, then I pressed the B there, yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, so, um, with, with this book, there was a long gestation, which I won't bore you with, but uh, the essential part of the process was uh, to grab uh, printouts of images from every source I could find and 
among them on the studio wall in more or less chronological order. You're looking there at uh, some uh, candidates from the, the early Middle Ages, so kind of 700 to 1100. Uh, uh, and um, I am freely placing, replacing, uh, uh, looking what, what looks self-sufficiently strong, what will actually reproduce well. It's a very, very constricting test, a real Procrustean bed to put, uh, to put the breadth of, of you know, humanity's um, creative making uh, under. But nonetheless, it, it, it's what will actually work in a book, in my, uh, um, in my conception. And from that broad array there, um, I select, um, first, first and foremost, um, uh, juxtapositions and sequences that seem intuitively interesting. Uh, the fact that uh, a stone carver in 950, uh, 950 India was uh, producing this, uh, these figures in Kajarao uh, at the same time as a woodcarver in Cologne was producing uh, the, f the first such image of um, a crucified Christ, a life-size crucified Christ, um, uh, is not of course, a causal uh, collection of, a, of any sort. You might even say it's a, it's a joke in very, very dubious taste. But um, nonetheless, um, by teasing it, I, uh, I, uh, I find that I can um, develop a keener sense of the particular uh, studio conditions in which each artist has been operating. Uh, the kinds of, it, it, it both juxtaposes um, and, the, you know, the common creative thread. Um, just, to, I mean, give you another couple of instances. Um, some, some of the juxtapositions are, are downright frivolous. Uh, uh, but there's a place for frivolity in art. God, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Angra had been looking at Persian, uh, Persian painting in some before he painted Madame Riviere, and uh, the, there was a Persian oil painter uh, uh, doing something equally flat, decorous, and modernistic in um, 1810 Tehran. Um, or um, this very haunting juxtaposition to me of um, a remarkable and singular sculpture uh, from Veracruz in, uh, on Mexico's Caribbean coast uh, and um, a sketch that Dura did in 1492 uh, as Columbus sailed um, and a self-portrait. Dura, fascinatingly, was the, was the first European artist ever to remark on the extraordinary qualities of pre-Columbian art. Um, and in fact, the last for quite a long time. But anyway, the, 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 so this is a tale of two utterly different ends of the world um, brought together by uh, a kind of uh, forced historical accident. And forced historical accidents of that sort are what increasingly structure the story of my book, which I won't uh, tire you with in the course of uh, a lecture that's supposed to be about art criticism. But I think uh, um, I'd quite like to do, do 
try out on you one very, very dubious st stretch of the book, uh, just to, because it isn't a kind of experiment in art writing, uh, and I, some, of it, some of it's conducted in a perfectly sensible manner. Uh, but here, I was, uh, uh, I, I was trying to do uh, something um, a bit dangerous. You may well think it's very, very stupid and foolish. Um, now, one of the problems, as I say, I'm always trying uh, to think about writing in terms of, you know, there's someone in a room actually attending on an object and uh, 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 trying to, f uh, to imbue it with all, all the imaginative intensity and intention that they can. Um, now, that's actually easier to do in the case of extremely old art, the Paleolithic, where we have the, the maker's mark, the, the kind of uh, 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 painterliness of cave painting, than it is when it comes to Bronze Age civilizations. I think at Bronze, when it comes to Bronze Age civilizations, we're at the furthest reach from uh, being able to confer our imaginative empathy. And yet, it seems worth trying. And we have the tantalizing uh, fact that, at least in the case, it's, it's an incidental help to the writer, uh, but, but it's valuable, that at least in the case of Egyptian art, we have uh, the names of many of the artists involved. Um, so, I'm, I'm discussing the reign of the famous um, heretic pharaoh Akhenaten. I'm sure you're familiar with how he changed all the nation's imagery in, in 1350 BC and you know, instilled a new ideological program. Um, he set about changing the nation's imagery. Uh, Akhenaten instructed one of his leading sculptors, Beck, to represent all things in Mart. M-A-A-T, uh, uh, the Egyptian word. What is mart? Well, here is a panel that was probably executed in Beck's workshop in the sunk reliefs technique that Egyptian carvers specialized in. It shows Akhenaten, his wife Nefertiti, and three of their daughters gathered under the beneficent rays of the single all-powerful sun god, Aten. It makes me cringe. It reminds me of watching the British royal family appear on a celebrity <laughs> game show. I suppose that some lingering royalist in me, wanting kings to be kings, must choke on the, the panel's pathetically demeaning saccharine touchy-feeliness. Why introduce it here, then? Intriguingly awful art, not a scientific category, but one for which we can probably all find candidates, affords a specialist pleasure to art historians, and this book isn't really the place to indulge specialist pleasures. But my point is, it's supposed to be an introductory text, I, no, no, not for the likes of you, but um, uh, my point is to suggest how complicated the facts and feelings involved in art have already become over 3,000 years before modern culture ever started talking about kitsch. <laughs> the mart that Akhenaten demanded from images is sometimes translated as truth. That would make him some kind of realist, intent on getting away from Egyptian stereotypes 
and letting the world know what a frail and gawky body he possessed. Despite the respect that Egyptians may have had for the physically unusual, what kind of respect for truth would have obliged his sculptures to fit all the figures around Akhenaten into the same spindly, androgynous straitjacket? I don't think it adds up. I don't think Beck was working from nature. Another translation for Mart might be right order. Quite possibly, like another, many another ideological revolutionary, Akhenaten may have thought he was getting back to some original scheme that, on which things should have operated which entailed visualizing what human bodies might have been like before gender and emotional reserve compartmentalized and complicated our lives. But we can't be sure, and it's too late to interview him. <laughs> What's fairly certain, however, is that in another stu studio of Akhenaten's Amarna, his capital, his other sculptor, Thutmose, would also have respected some principle like Mart. Thutmose's portrait of Nefertiti catches my feelings in quite the opposite way to Beck's. I don't, in honesty, just tell myself it is, it is beautiful. I tell myself she is beautiful. Of course, little tricks of craftsman-like magic assist the life-size block of painted limestone in prompting that reaction. For instance, its glittering right eyeball of copper and quartz material specifics, material specifics. Um, but behind those naturalistic effects lie much the same instincts for sinuous elongation and for closed, complete, completed visual rhymes that underlie Beck's panel. Rather more cunningly and tactfully applied, I would opine. Mart, I would propose, is some insidious, invisible regulator tugging slyly at appearances. Something indefinable, something subtler than rule book geometry. It has always been latently present, but in a context like Amana's, programmatic, controversial, innovatory, it started blatantly to declare itself. Already, this tradition had got itself hooked on the tension between nature and the ideal. And so this is my laborious heuristic way of finding a material, visible example specific for that tortuous and elusive term, the ideal in art. Once I've, I've now incorporated it in, in quite early on in the text of my book, and I, I can use it with impunity, uh, uh, th therefore, notably in discussing not only the tension between naturalism and idealism in uh, the famous descendant of um, Egyptian art, namely Greek sculpture, um, but also um, the pronounced uh, idealistic caste of um, sculpture in uh, Africa, south of Egypt, which... I believe, and it's not, not one of the things I assert because it, can, it cannot be proved, does bear a profound relation to Egyptian sculpture. I mean, there we're looking there's, there's the, the, uh, one of the very earliest pieces of uh, um, sub-Saharan sculpture that, that, that's extant, that third figure. Uh, and both its form and its iconography uh, seem r remarkably 
analogous to that of, uh, of Egyptian sculpture, uh, though it's made in terracotta in Nigeria. Yet there's a, there's a piece from the same culture, the Knock culture, in the uh, Stanford Museum. Um, and, of course, that, that on the far right, we see a much, much more recent Sinufa wood carving. Um, but uh, if, if one can talk about um, idealization and about uh, the, the conceptual approaches of African sculptors, um, one's got a leg up. And that's my justification for this very, very dodgy technique of uh, um, resorting to mentions of the British royal family in, uh, in completely inappropriate contexts. Well, that, anyway, is just one rather um, extended example of the, uh, of the methods I'm trying out uh, in my experiment of developing a panoramic vision of art history based on concrete experiential encounters with art objects. When it comes to developing a panorama of contemporary art criticism, which is the subject, after all, I'm here due to address, journalistic art criticism was basically Matthew's brief. Uh, uh, um, I don't intend to make any such equivalent effort. The task has been done already for me. Now, earlier when I gave you a brief resume of uh, my career path, I failed perhaps fully to de delineate the aura of inauthenticity and belatedness that has always dogged my steps in life. It's something I can live with. I don't, don't, but, uh, um, uh, it happens that, uh, I, uh, as, as Peter has already stated, I am not the real Julian Bell, who died in 1938. Uh, uh, and it also happens that um, the, um, uh, whenever I think I've painted an, an interesting and original image, it turns out to be pa already painted by the um, English painter Michael Andrews uh, sometime before me. Bell on top, Andrews uh, uh, going far, far beyond uh, 30 years before. Bother. Um, and um, moreover, it turns out that whenever I've written something, well, um, about 10 years ago, I, um, uh, uh, I, I, I t um, turned out this little book about the theory of painting. I wanted to call it Flat Things. I thought that would be a groovy way of describing paintings. The Thames and Hudson completely correctly said, that's a complete non-starter. No one's going to buy a book called Flat Things. We've got to call it What is Painting. No, 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 I don't like What is Painting. Oh, anyway, oh, yes, okay, we'll have a What is Painting if it'll sell. Um, uh, so they took it, to, they, they, they settled the cover image, they took it to Frankfurt, and they phoned back in horror, because there on the facing bookstall in, uh, <laughs> in Frankfurt was What Painting Is by Professor James Elkins of Chicago grinning with his raffish moustache there. <laughs> and uh, so it has ever been. I have, uh, I, I wrote, um, I'd almost completed a new history of art when someone thrust in my hand one of uh, the um, thousands of um, extremely erudite, well-written and amusing uh, uh, volumes that the the extraordinarily polymathic and capable Professor Elkins produced, this one being a little 
book called Stories of Art, which uh, put a dynamite charge uh, under any attempt to tell further narrative histories of art and uh, laughed it to scorn very, very, very wittingly. So that, uh, that, was, that was annoying. Uh, and now uh, um, uh, Matthew invites me to uh, uh, lecture about what's happening to art criticism and what should turn up in the bookstalls but James Elkins. What happened to art criticism? Um, so, there we are, 86, 86 pages, Prickly Paradigm Press, uh, not much money. Um, I recommend it to any, uh, 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 seriously, I, I, I recommend this book to anyone troubled by that question, what happened to art criticism? Um, and I, I see no reason to replicate Elkins's labours. He's read everything. Um, it, 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 it's an extraordinarily comprehensive uh, survey of the state of the field. But I'll summarise his gist. Elkins, in this book, is lamenting the heat death of the art critical universe. The sprawling uh, postmodern literary scene that he surveys is a cosmos of catalogue intros that absolutely no one reads and glossy magazines that almost no one reads and Endless, endless blogs, not to mention swarming anthills and receding galaxies of visual, cultural, and post-Lacanian academic productivity that almost no one gives a damn about, except in these enlightened walls. Um, uh, what, moreover, um, in these diffuse, twiddly expanses, Elkins claims, Description truly is all in all. Value, judgment, and claims to artistic reasoning truly have departed from the earth. Where now are the trenchant, sinewy discriminations of Greenberg or of Fairfield Porter, let alone the grand moralizings of Ruskin or the sublime subversiveness of Baudelaire? All we're left with is their parodic after-echo in the form of ridiculous reactionaries like Hilton Kramer. The, the mainstream of art criticism has indeed moved nearer and nearer to the condition of food writing. Paraphrases of visual succulence with no conceptual or moral strings attached. And the timider that the craft of art writing gets, the less people will feel inclined to read. We are in a state of crisis indeed. That is Elkins's uh, argument, just to summarise, I think. I hope he's not in the audience. Um, well, I do have some local objections to Elkins's drift. He admits, though he slightly qualifies it afterwards, that from his perspective, Schedel has usually been the bête noire of contemporary art criticism, a flip, demonic celebrant of postmodern polymorphous perversity, exulting in facile irresponsibility. Now, when, Elkin, uh, when Elkins says that, I feel a certain union solidarity. Freelance hacks versus campus cultural cartographers, I know which side I, I go with. I would say that Elkins is not worthy so much as to tie uh, uh, Shedal's bootlaces, because he has never, 
in anything I've read of his, written with an iota of the aesthetic pleasure that pervades Shadal's every sentence. Art, for God's sake, is fascinating. It's thrilling. Art trips up your heart and sends it flying. Forget that. You've lost the bloody plot. Elkins is a great cartographer, but cartography entails dislocation, literally, hovering in detachment over the field of cultural production he surveys. Elkins has lost touch with the ground of immediate aesthetic pleasure. To pursue this line of attack, what Elkins is mapping is, in fact, a non-existent realm. There is no permanently demarcated province bearing the name of art criticism. There have been sundry flurries of interesting verbal activity directed at interesting artefacts, but they observe no common constitution. Further, it's demonstrably historically untrue that art requires art criticism for its health, let alone for its survival. Yes, it happens that Manet read Baudelaire, and yes, it happens that Greenberg talked fruitfully to Pollock and Morris Lewis, and that Michael Fried shared a coffee with Anthony Caro. But I defy anyone to demonstrate that, the, that art criticism had a crucial formative role in the vital new movements of the early 20th century, in the innovations of Matisse or Picasso or Mondrian or Kandinsky, let alone in what I'd see as the even greater uh, innovations of early modernity in the work of, works of Rembrandt or of Goya. Well, what I have found as a freelance painter and, a, and then as a freelance writer is that in such a position as my own, you can only offer. That is your lot. To stand on the street walk with your, uh, uh, with your wares, hoping for punters. You have no entitlement. You have no right to demand th this, that, or the other of art in general or of culture in general. You can't say art criticism must reform. Commonly, people who wander into art criticism from whatever irregular path do so with the generous intention to offer homage to great artists, their humble thanks for thrills received. That's na a natural instinct that draws people into the field. Yet, at this juncture in cultural history, which is, as Elkins truly delineates, a point where we stand in the middle of a broad, low, trackless plain, getting ever more trackless as the press rapidly disappears. Um, uh, we, at this point, I would urge myself, for a start, and perhaps others likewise, to have done with homage to the great. Sure, that's what the editors like. More copy on Freud, more copy on Polka, more attention paid to those few isolated monuments on the plain who already monopolize media attention. But what we hacks should be attempting to offer instead is a more historical, a more political, a more moral contextualization of those lofty figures, a scaling of them down 
trying more urgently to delineate the lie of the land around those figures. By, doing so, by, uh, by striving to work in that di direction, even against our editor's behests, we might actually be offering a more exciting service to the readership outside the arts community. We might actually establish a new audience. Such is my vague and airy and tentative project. But uh, I see, already as I sketch it, where it's heading towards the kind of work that institutions like this Humanities Centre perform. If so, please take it as a gesture of appreciation for the hospitality you've accorded me. Thanks. I'd love to. I'd love to. I hope I haven't talked too long. Yeah. Is there, what's the relationship between your writing about an exhibit and the curator's writing about the same exhibit? Uh, I, I try to uh, defer attention from the latter as, as long as I possibly can because um, I, I, I have this naive belief, uh, it's a kind of Greenbergian belief that uh, the, the, the visual field has to have its own sphere of competence, the, the, the exhibits uh, have to declare themselves to, to me intuitively and directly as, uh, as kind of physical punches in the solar plexus somehow or other and um, if, uh, if they don't that may be a problem of the hang of the exhibition, the install, installation uh, it often happens of course um, but um, I then as I say on the train, train home I, re I read what the curator has to say and um, very, very frequently because there's a lot of fantastic curators around. Uh, 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 I think, yeah, that's brilliant. You, you, you've elucidated the, the, the kind of instinctual experience uh, 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 I've just encountered. Uh, sometimes I think you're talking a load of very poorly used jargon, but uh, I, I, I've done nothing, nothing against curators. It's just that I, my style of criticism uh, uh, my modus operandi is, is to go for the, the naive visual thang. Have you found that your opinions change on a second visit to the same uh, exhibit? Yes, yes, I, uh, absolutely. And um, I, um, I think... All I can say is uh, much greater people than me have been greatly inconsistent. Um, uh, and you will find that in, in Ruskin, I'm sure, in Baudelaire, and um, probably, possibly not in Greenberg, because he was a... Uh, uh, anyway, um, you, you, the, the, I, yes, I, 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 I've been, been inconsistent, I'm sure, and, uh, uh, and I'm sure I also I've been moved by you know, the fashionable talk. I try to shut my ears to it, but uh, that's what happens. Um, and um, yes, I, 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 again and again, uh, um, I, I mean, I remember talking to David Sylvester, great English critic, again. he said, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's like a river. You, know, you never see the same picture twice. When it hangs in a different room, it is, it is a different picture. Uh, and... Uh, 
you are just um, trying to, to you know, take a cupful from the river at, some, at a certain point. You're not defining that, uh, that work of art for all time. You were saying that one germ of your criticism is you're imagining someone in a room pushing an object around. So is it that you're both a practitioner and a critic? Is that what makes you different, your friend James Elkins? Uh, well, I think James Elkins is a painter, but I don't know much about his painting, to tell you the honest truth. But uh, um, uh, uh, I mean, um, there's some rather flimsy drawings in his stories of art book. But all I'm saying is uh, that's my typically untypical uh, standpoint. Uh, I, I, I can only um, proceed by imagining what would it have been like to well, not necessarily push this thing around, but um, coax it or uh, tweak it or, you know, um, fondle it or whatever, uh, whatever one does all day long. Um, uh, so that's the, kind of, that's the kind of act I have. And uh, I, I'd better trade on it because I haven't got, you know, I'm one trick pony, really. In looking at your, um, what you showed, on the screen, you're an example from your mirror, mirror of the world, the juxtaposition of the, nude, the Indian nudes and the uh, sculptures and the yes. crucifix. Yes. Um, I was struck by the Barnes collection, the way he's done in Pennsylvania, the way Dr. Barnes arranged his art as a history. I'm wondering, have you been to the Barnes? And I have not. What, were you, what would you think of it? I, I, I have not. I've just, just been to the, the museum here, and I thought wonderful that juxtaposition was from a room full of Rodin's to a room full of great African sculpture. It was, uh, 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 they really bounced off each other in a very exciting way. And it's exactly, yeah, I mean, these completely different but, but equally figure-obsessed figure uh, approaches uh, of the carver and the modeler, you know, the classic stereotypes, but uh, uh, both of their most powerful. Um, so that is exactly the kind of juxtaposition I love. And um, you should never let history get in the way of a good hang, is what would be my principle in running, uh, uh, running a, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, if it turns out that El Greco has got to be in a room with Picasso rather than with Tintoretto, put him there, or whatever, you know. Um, I, but I, I'm afraid I can't, to my shame, I, I, um, I, I've, if I'd had a bit longer last week, I might have got to the barns, but I've never been there in my life. Uh, yeah. Um, there can be great suspicion about the relationship between language, what the writer does to the object and the art object itself, the image or the photograph or the painting or the sculpture, whatever the object may be. And, and, it, and I can detect it a little bit in some of the typical things. You know, I'm going to leave my art literature degree and go back to painting the material reality of being in the studio or this image of my the writer. My fallacies, yes, yes. Well, <laughs> and the, the image of the writer pushing, pushing the object around, physically connecting with the object. So how do you reconcile the fact that the language is not the object, that, that one of the media that you use is this... Word, these words that we have that is not the same as the 
art object. It can, the writing can make the object more, it can certainly make it less interesting, it can make it more exciting, but it's not the same thing. So how do you it's kind of reconcile it? Well, it is. I, I, I tend to think that, that, that uh, art writing is like throwing snow at a wall. You know, it evaporates and the wall's still there. Um, uh, uh, I, I mean, which would be... Uh, I, or, that's what I think when I'm a painter, anyway. <laughs> Not, um, but, um, uh, of course, uh, there's no denying that art criticism can have, have a formative and a dangerous effect on people's careers. It's, 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 it's a de that's an easily demonstrable fact. It can be... Uh, a, a very, you know, we have a responsibility in that sense, and I haven't, I haven't really discussed that among the many angles. But no, I mean, you, that's, uh, that's a very sensitive uh, way of, uh, probably more sensitive than I put it, but I, I'm very aware of the, uh, of the kinds of um, imaginative fallacies one has to have uh, in talking about uh, description uh, uh, and talking about judgment. Um, and I, I was trying to say, you know, uh, uh, the relation between naming something and actually seeing it. Um, uh, we could probably discuss it. I'd invite him, but I, I, I like your point. Thank you for the talk. I, I was very struck by your um, conviction because so much of your paper was about refusing conviction. Um, but one statement that you know you really sort of paused over and in terms of your delivery, was itself a very interesting moment of performance in which you were talking about um, a kind of canon, really, of uh, writers you admire. And you said what they all have in common is that they are engaged in performance. And, yes. you, and I think that is quite right and, and very interesting. But then at the end of your paper, you were sort of undoing that, I thought, by saying, well, there is no real canon and there is no real thing that we can discern as art criticism. And instead, you said, um, but there are these performances in a certain way. And then you claimed or self-identified as a hack. And so I'm interested right. in, you know, in the performance of the hack who's now you know, writing for the New York Review of Books or TLS or so on. So could you just talk about this? Because in my, um, in my head too, because I okay. think there's another conceit in the paper and the other conceit is that the practitioner brings a certain kind of specialized knowledge to the thing. And so of course I'm thinking of people like Avogadora Rica or even Donald Judd in his early days. Yes, yes, you know. uh, the, so these other, yeah. you know, really, um, I would say very significant artist practitioners, yeah. uh, or writer practitioners, yeah. but who would, Die before they ever took up the notion that they were hacks. Right? They were oh, extremely I, I, serious I, 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 about their writing. I, I, so I, I, I'm try trying to out the word hack. You know, I think it's I think it's a very positive word. I, I, and I'm, I not, I'm not ashamed that. of being. Yes. Uh, no, that know, was I, clear. But that. But my question is, you have an institutional performance which is anti-hack. So. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have the luck to, get, to sometimes get jobs from uh, you know, a wonderful pl place to write like the New York Review, which is, which is a great honor. And, um, I, um, but I, I don't wish... Um, it does, uh, and I'm slightly criticizing myself, uh, it does commit you to fixing more attention on a subject that has been uh, greatly attended to, namely... L. Freud, you know. Uh, uh, so um, 
I, I think the subtitle, I didn't, didn't mention the verbal bubble wrap, I did say the contradictions of art writing, the contradictions of art writer, uh, 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 I'm afraid a patent, um, but yeah, I, 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 um, sorry, repeat the first part of what you were saying, because I could go there. There you are, yeah. <laughs> Do we have a final question here? All right, well then let's thank Julian Bell very much for this wonderful talk.